0: We're in a season of Spurgeon's life when he's actually quite unwell and when he has to take reasonably regular rests and breaks in order to sustain the pace of his ministry. It's with that in mind that he preaches uh, the pastor's parting blessing, a sermon delivered at the Metropolitan Tabernacle in Newington before leaving home for a journey. It's sermon 988 and it's undated. It's what you might then call an occasional sermon. A lot of Spurgeon's sermons are what we might say responsive. They're reacting to circumstances and situations, taking advantage of where people's attention is. This one is, is not just responsive, it's it's preached with this particular occasion in view. And the text and the concerns of the sermon all reflect that particular occasion. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. Romans 16, 24 is the text. I hope you'll uh, profit from this as you think about not maybe precisely the same occasion, but at least the heart that beats behind the sermon that is being preached at this time. So you know, my name is Jeremy Walker. I'm the pastor of a church in Crawley in West Sussex in the southeast of England called Maidenbower Baptist Church. This podcast is produced by Media Gratiai and you can find more about this and other similar podcasts at mediagratiai.org podcasts where you can always sign up for a regular newsletter where you'll find out what we're reading this week and the featured sermon. As we have this week a representative sermon from the output of this gifted minister of Jesus Christ. So this week we begin with Spurgeon's beginning. The Christian man is a man of generous actions, but his wishes go far beyond his deeds. Where he cannot be beneficent, he is benevolent. That is, where he cannot do good, he at least wishes good. If he cannot actually accomplish good for all, yet he anxiously desires it. Our wishes may be boundless, though our powers are contracted, and this will be good for ourselves and not useless to others. He's setting the scene with this general principle. It's an interesting opening. True religion, he says, is not a separating and repelling force, but rather like attraction, draws individual atoms into one body and holds them together. And God in his grace gathers together in one body in Christ Jesus, all his scattered ones. And the same spirit who constrains us to love God leads us to love our brother also. So at this point, he seems to be uh, sort of building these aphorisms, these dicta, these statements, one on top of another, uh, and he's beginning to weave together the elements that are going to sustain the thrust of this sermon. He goes on to say that uh, the great heart of the apostle relieved itself in the ever-open outlet of good wishes and benedictions and intercessions, and then talks about the benediction itself, the, 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 the good speaking the, the, the pronouncement of a blessing upon God's people. And he says, is that a sinful or vain thing? Are the blessings of good men of no value? Can we no more say, peace be to this house and hope that our peace shall rest upon it? He says, yeah, we're con- so concerned about a priestly sacramentarianism that, that we may have lost sight of a, the, the value of a good man's blessing. May no Jacob nowadays bless the two sons of a beloved Joseph? Will it be a mere form if an Isaac should invoke a blessing on his descendants, or if a departing servant of God like Moses pronounce a benediction on his people? I confess I would not treat lightly my father's blessing or the benediction of my mother, and though neither father nor mother can by their mere wish confer anything upon us, yet who would wish them to depart this life without having bequeathed us the legacy of their blessing? So again, you see how he's putting together these various thoughts. Maybe at first glance they seem a little disjointed, but he's going to draw it all together. So he's ready to confess that there are those to whom he looks with the same respect, and without the slightest worship of men or care about mental appointments or mere office, he recognises those people from whom he would long to receive a blessing. Good men in their benedictions are moved to give us something more than words for they mean what they say and they appeal to heaven to make true their wishes and their wishes being prayers minted in another form become current coin of the realm and greatly enrich us for they bear the approving stamp of heaven upon them and drawing those threads together remember the Christian man who wishes better than he can sometimes do the attractive force of true religion, the reality of well wishing in the truest sense from a man of God, the the desire that we would have to know the blessing that a godly man can call down, and then this uh apostolic statement in Romans sixteen, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all, and he's saying, right, this this is what we desire Paul's present and ever new blessing. And in anticipation of his own departure from the congregation, in anticipation of his having to, uh, to go away on this reasonably long journey, he's taking this uh, as the language of his own heart. He wants us to analyze the text. What is meant by the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ? With whom is that grace to be? And what will be the effect of it if it is with us all? So, what is meant by the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ? And he does this by by means of a series of questions. And he's implying answers and then stating them. So he asks, does he mean by this grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the grace which was revealed in Christ the Saviour, the grace of God which shone in the gift of a Saviour to the sons of men, that grace which was displayed in the coming of Christ to be bone of our bone and flesh of our flesh, which was manifested in the whole life of Christ on earth, was revealed especially in the death of Christ, and which is still to be seen since his resurrection and ascension in his intercession and in his standing as our representative before the Father's throne. Now that's a pretty ripe question, I think you'll agree. It's one of those questions that uh, pretty much supplies a lot of its answer. Remember, he's not stating this is it and this is all of it, but he's using these questions and it's a, it's, it's a, a clever, a thoughtful technique to provoke us to ask, What is it about this grace that is so precious? Does he mean the grace which comes to us through Christ, as well as that which is shown to us in Christ? That Christ did not create the Father's love to us, the elect were loved of God before all worlds, and that Christ himself is the gift of that love and not the cause of it. That Calvary did not procure or purchase the Father's love to us, but the love of God toward us could not by reason of our sins and the penalty due thereto come to us so as to be enjoyed by us without it so there's grace which comes to us through christ as well as in christ and what about the grace which comes to us with christ those distinctive blessings which come to souls who abide in christ who commune with him walk with him work for him and are raised up together and made to sit together in heavenly places in him who are not only saved but something more not drowning men barely landed on the shore and hardly possessed of life, but those who have life abundantly walking in the light of God's countenance and going from strength to strength, but says Spurgeon there's there's no restriction in it, there's nothing miserly about it. Grace in Christ, grace through Christ, grace with Christ, put these together, and even then you've not grasped the whole so these aren't quite rhetorical questions, but they're beginning to fill out the sense of it. What Spurgeon says Paul intends is all the grace that is in any way connected with Christ Jesus. And he says, if you compare it then with the uh, the benediction in the close of the second of Corinthians, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the communion of the Holy Ghost be with you all. So he's doing a little bit of uh, preacherly cheating here. He's giving himself scope to extend his his thought concerning this. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ then includes all the grace secured to us in the eternal covenant. It it embraces at least something of the divine intent in terms of the whole Trinitarian blessing, the, the triple blessing of the sacred Trinity. Paul is wishing the saints all the grace they need, all the grace they can desire, all the grace the infinite God can give and how truly, says our pastor, do I echo his great prayer that all grace may be with you all. You see, there's the pastoral heart. There's our, our pastor preacher standing in front of us saying, I understand why Paul prays like this. I want for you what he wanted for the Romans. And now he's going to dig a little bit more closely. If we're talking about this great breadth, grace in Christ, through Christ, with Christ, all the grace in any way connected with Christ as the one who is sent by and beloved of the Father, as the one who is indwelt by the Holy Spirit. He says, what what are we talking about? Well, first, may the love of Jesus Christ be with you and may you know that you have it. May it be so with you that you may distinctly and beyond all doubt know that Jesus loves you, and that fact being ascertained, may you drink deep into the fullness of its meaning. May you be ravished with the assurance that the ever-blessed Son of God has set his affection upon you, has loved you from before the foundation of the world, loves you now even as the Father loves him and will love you when heaven and earth shall like a scroll be rolled up and like an outworn vesture be put away. What else does he mean? May the mercy as well as the love of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. The great mercy is to have no suspicion that sin is left upon you, but to be certain that every transgression of every sort has been forever put away through the precious blood which cleanses from all sin. Alas, there are many Christians who, even in their prayers, do not appear to understand or distinguish between themselves and the unconverted. May you then not, therefore, come before him with what is too often used as a mere parrot cry, Lord, have mercy upon us, miserable sinners, For if you believers are miserable sinners, you ought not to be. You are sinners, yes, but you ought not to be miserable. You've been forgiven. You are justified by faith in Christ Jesus. And is all this nothing? How can you ignore it and speak of yourself still, as you would have spoken before you were saved? Is the Lord's pardon nothing that you complain still of being condemned? Do you despise the divine forgiveness? You're a child of God. Do you still use the language of a slave and feel no liberty in your soul? I fear, he says, that what is imagined to be humility is a mingle mangle of hypocrisy and unbelief. If you're saved, it's sheer cant to call yourself a miserable sinner. You ought to be one of the happiest of beings and rejoice that the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ abides with you. Now, clearly Spurgeon isn't here denying the fact that we have remaining sin. He, he points out that we are sinners, but we ought not to be miserable. His point, and I think he's trying to make it carefully, is that if we have been saved by the grace of God, even in acknowledging our remaining sin, even in confessing our ongoing battles, even in recognizing that we are not yet home, we should not then speak or pray as if we were still dead in our trespasses and sins, as if we had no hope and no prospects, as if there were no blessing from God in Christ Jesus, that we should recognize that reality of our experience as sinners saved by grace, as men and women who've been plucked out of darkness, translated into the kingdom of the Son of God's love, that that we should testify of mercy received and not live and speak as if that mercy had been withheld. Then, that we may be the subjects of Christ's work constantly. That gives yet another meaning to this benediction, this well-speaking, this blessing called down. May we walk in the light as he is in the light, and so have fellowship one with another, and may the blood of Jesus Christ, God's dear Son, cleanse us from all sin. Well, what else does the benediction mean? May we be possessors of Christ's peace. Whatever troubles you, may he comfort you and give you his peace, that deep, unruffled calm which reigns in his own bosom. If there be one gem of grace, which beyond all others especially belongs to the Lord Jesus, it is the lovely pearl of peace. He is the Lord and giver of peace, the prince of peace, the messenger of the covenant of peace. And wouldn't Paul also desire for us that we may exhibit in ourselves the grace which shone so brightly in Christ and was seen by men and angels to the glory of God the Father? Grace, he says, displayed itself in the Lord Jesus in a character absolutely perfect, in which not one of the virtues was absent or exaggerated, and in which not a single fault could be found. You can depict the character of John, for a prominent excellence is visible. You can describe the characteristics of Peter. You can give an idea of Paul, for each of these is like a separate gem, and each one has its own especial brightness and colour, and, I may add, each one has its own peculiar flaw. But when you come to the altogether lovely one, your descriptive powers fail you, for he is like the high priest's breastplate, in which all the jewels met in harmony. The excellences of all the excellent are in him, And none of the flaws in him, all perfections meet to make up one perfection. And we want to be perfect as he is perfect, holy as he is holy, to have more of that beautiful comprehensiveness of excellence in our lives. Now he says, I've only begun to scratch the surface. I'm far from having brought out all the various shades of meaning which lie within this ancient benediction, as the Holy Spirit, like the sun, shines on this crystal text and makes it to flash with all the colours of the rainbow. But the point is, without trying to exhaust it, that he's given us a sense of the scope of asking that the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ should be with us. And that carries him then to his second point. With whom is this grace to be? And the answer is, with you all, with all the saints. To all who are in Rome, beloved of God, called to be saints and by extension to those who have also been called to be saints with them. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. My love be with you all in Christ Jesus, he wrote to the Corinthians. This is his heart for the saints. Now, why would the apostle pray like this? Why would he want this for the Romans, for the Corinthians and indeed for all who are going to read these letters that he's written? First of all, because you all need it. There's not one among you who can do without the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. The most experienced Christian is greatly in danger when he or she thinks his mountain stands firm and will never be moved. The wise and intelligent are in sore peril when they think that they can battle with error apart from the master. Conscious weakness is our true strength. Then remember that you may all have it. You all, having believed in Jesus, have him to be your own, and you may surely have his grace. He who gave you Christ has virtually given you all the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And then, there's no grace which you may not have, no grace which you ought to be content to go without. If a line should be drawn in Christian experience, he says, and a decree passed that such and such a Christian should never advance beyond that mark, you might feel very unhappy. And yet some of you have drawn such a line for yourselves, and you're not unhappy. It's grievous to see how we stunt and dwarf ourselves and appear to be content with a very poor and feeble form of spiritual life. There's not a brook that flows with milk and honey, but you may drink of it, he assures his hearers. If you have but faith and prayer enough to win it for yourselves, he gives more grace. You seek to enjoy it. And now he begins to to divide up this all, to think about the different classes of people and experiences and needs within that breadth. My dear brothers in office, my esteemed deacons and elders, I pray that you may have the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ abundantly to walk before us as becomes fathers in Israel, examples to the flock. There are members of the church who are very poor. There are in proportion probably more poor among us than in any other church of our order and standing, he says. and I'm thankful to God, but... But he says, I I can't conceive of a church rich in grace, which has not in it many of the Lord's poor. And he wants them then to be patient, to sanctify their trials and to make their homes bright with the presence of the Lord, to be kept from envy and murmuring. Here's the way that that grace that is with them all will manifest itself. First of all, in those who hold office, then in those who are particularly poor, also in those who are very rich. For how much grace do the wealthy require, kept from temptations which beset their position? What about those who are ripening for heaven, the older saints? May it be light with you at eventide, and may your rest be glorious. May you live long in the Christian church, serve your master well, press on if you're young in years, and amidst the temptations of youth and trials of manhood, may you stand fast and glorify your Lord. So you see how he's, He's taking these things and he's putting them one way and the other. He's uh, turning them back and forth. He's using these, if you like, almost polarities within the congregation. The the poor, the rich, the the older, the, the younger. Some of you, he says, are strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you to keep you strong. Those of you who are doubting and fearing, the timid ones of the flock, may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you too, for he carries the lambs in his bosom. So having given the general exhortation and having done so properly and wisely we should add you notice pastorally how he almost goes down another level this is this is important that he wants to press this home into some of the particular experience of his different members of his congregation this is what the puritans would have called a discriminating ministry that is it it's making distinctions It's understanding the different classes of spiritual and other experience in the congregation. But he does want to underscore the limitation that he's not speaking to those who are not believers, that you cannot expect the blessing of Christ to abide with you if you're hypocritical or formal or self-deceived. Sincerity is a needful index of the grace of Christ being with you. So do you, dear hearer, in sincerity love Jesus Christ? If you do, may his grace be with you. But he also uh, underscores something that he's picking up again from the first letter to the Corinthians. The salutation of me, Paul, with my own hand. If any man love not the Lord Jesus Christ, let him be anathema maranatha. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. So he's reminding us, drawing in now from other similar benedictions that these aren't given indiscriminately and universally outside of those who are trusting and loving the Lord Jesus Christ. Whoever loves not Christ, he says, is cursed. Oh God, he cries out, save us all from a curse so well deserved. For not to love such a generous Saviour, not to love one so lovely and so gracious, not to love one who loved his enemies and laid down his life for sinners, is in itself to be accursed. You see how he's pressing this home. Here's the blessing. Here's the good word to those who are in Christ Jesus. Won't you come to Christ that you may be so blessed? And then he comes as his parting word for some little time, and he wants to explain in the third place what will be the result to you if the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Uh, And he's he's speaking here with prayerful hope, we might say. Four particular lines of of application. There will be a blessed consequence to you, Godward. As you have this grace of Christ in you, you will love God better, you will seek his face oftener, You will pray with more confidence and more vehemence. You could not have the grace of Christ without being much in prayer for this eminently distinguished Christ's own character. If you have the grace of Christ, you will walk with God even as he did. So he's saying, if if the grace of Christ be with you, then you will have a more Christ-like character toward and Christ-like communion with God as your father, and his father, oh, he longs to see a church made up wholly of saints who live in habitual intercourse with God, and he says, "I know it's not so with all in this church. I know there are many out of our four thousand members who walk with God. Wow, what a statement to be able to make, eh, but I mourn that there are others who follow afar off so what what, what a what a blessing." that of the 4,000 members, he says the most of you are pressing toward God, seeking to walk with him and to bring honor to him. But he says, those of you who are drifting, those of you who are colder, if your hearts condemn you, may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you to amend your ways. Again, you get that, that distinctiveness, that discriminatory preaching. Are you in this condition or are you in that condition? Then he says, the next beneficial effect will extend not only toward God, but to your fellow members. For if you have the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ with you, you will love each other with a pure heart fervently. You will have compassion one toward another. No one will seek his own, but every man his brother's benefit. Suspicion, harsh judgment, envy and jealousy will cease. Gossiping and foolish talking will come to an end. What a What a blessed church it would be if the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ were with us and that were the consequence. He says, How much these things abound and what sorrow they cause. But when Christ's grace is with us, our speech will not damage but do good. Our speech will build up rather than tear down. Our hearts, rather than being lifted up with pride, will esteem others better than ourselves. Our eyes will be open to see the excellences of the saints rather than their faults and will strive who can be of most service to the rest. You can see this is his longing. If I'm going away may this be your experience. Then what about your families and yourselves? If the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you you will personally be much the happier Your troubles will sit lightly upon you when grace is fully within you. Your joys will have a mellower taste in them than now when they are seasoned with grace. Gracious men, he says, will be a blessing at the family altar. The servants will find the house a home and the children will become children of God when the master and mistress are filled with the grace of our Lord Jesus. Gracious men will be a blessing, not just to their families, but to others. A sure blessing to the neighbourhoods in which they live. The sweet perfume of their family piety will blow out at the doors and windows and spread a balmy influence around. Oh, ought to think of this. Who would not pray that the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ would be with us? And then further afield, toward God, toward the church itself, towards our families and ourselves, and then out into the world which lies in darkness. He says this about standing at a window in Cheapside, a a populous part of London. Many sensations pass through a man's mind if he stands at a window in Cheapside and sees the rush of the living river. It strikes me that the flow of our crowded streets is one of the most wonderful sights in the whole world. There go the thousands, tramp, 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 on, on, on without a pause. Thoughtful men watch the stream and calculate this and that according to the manner of statistics, but the right-minded Christian contemplating the scene has this consideration uppermost. All these are immortal. How many, or how few of them, are on the road to bliss, and how many are heaping up wrath against the day of wrath? Then will he breathe the prayer involuntarily, Lord, have mercy upon this guilty city, Save the myriads of this modern Nineveh, and let transgressors learn thy ways. Oh, if the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ were with us, we should, like the Saviour, often burst into tears over London, as he did over Jerusalem. We should not trifle, as we now do, with opportunities of doing good. We should speak to ones and twos if we could reach no more, and Jesus' love would be our theme. His time is up. Time compels me to cease, he says, and he knows that this is the last time he'll have eyes upon his beloved flock and so he solemnly pronounces this benediction upon them. The peace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all and my heart says, Amen, Amen, Amen. I wonder, my friends, as I leave you on this occasion, whether or not your own heart can add its triple Amen to that prayer, that benediction, The peace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Not so much for those who are far afield, not even primarily for those of us who are listening together, but for the congregations of which we are a part, that we can look around them, we can think about them, and we can pray for them toward God, even if we were not in a position to say it for ourselves, that nothing would rejoice our hearts more than to have the grace, the peace, of our Lord Jesus Christ upon every one of his saints, both with us and in every place. May God give us an appetite for this, for his glory, for our communion with him, for the blessing of the church, for his favour upon our families and our own souls, and then for the world that lies in darkness, that the grace that we enjoy may, because of our ministry, because of our testimony, flow out towards many others besides and prove a means in God's gracious hands of doing wonderful good to multitudes more. I hope you'll join me again, God willing, on another week to continue with our study of Spurgeon's sermons. Next week, Lord willing, it's the sheep and their shepherd. It's sermon 995, the sheep and their shepherd, and we're due to be reading from sermon 989, through to 995 that featured sermon so do read with us do join with us do leave a review on the podcast uh, wherever you're listening or uh, get in touch if you've got questions or encouragements we love to hear from people and we trust that this will continue to be a blessing to you thank you for now and god bless you